Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And this week we are looking at Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is a short story. Um, In fact, it's so short that if you haven't read it, go read it now. Like, just type it in on Google, stop this thing, and go read it. We'll wait. wait. We can wait. Yeah, Yeah. sure. (laughs) It's 40 pages. All right, well, now that you're back and probably a little bit traumatized... um, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It definitely wasn't exactly... And if you're asking... Hysterical laughter. What the heck did I just read? Um, we were too. You're in good company. You're in good company. That was the first question I asked when I finished that. Yeah, I think I think I was just like, I know I have this rule that's like, don't read things on the inter- like commentaries because it might colour your interpretation of it before I do things like that. But I had to. I really had to like read, read a bit about this because... Yeah. Anyway, um, for those who didn't want to go and read it and don't intend on reading it but want to know the plot anyway, Chiara, Victoria, what's well, it about? Okay, well, it starts off with um, this family, this rather dysfunctional family, um, wife, husband, three kids, and this grandma, and they're going to Tennessee. No, they're going, no, they're going to Florida. The grandma wants to go to Tennessee. And um, it starts off with her warning them that they shouldn't go to Florida because the misfit is on the loose who has just escaped from this prison and he's killed a whole bunch of people and then they go travelling and they they meet this this guy, Red Sam, who's in charge of the restaurant or something. The diner. The the diner. And um, he seems a good guy and they talk about the old days and then um, they're driving along a road and the grandma says, let's go up to this house that I used to visit um, and kind of manipulates her family into getting her to getting them to go up this road. It's actually a common occurrence throughout it, like her manipulating the family to try and... She's a bit annoying. It's a very very subtle thing. I I recommend you read it twice. In fact, go read it now again. Yeah, we'll wait. We'll wait. Yeah, go for it. Now that you're back and still confused, let's continue. (laughs) Um, Anyway, and so um, then she realises that the house is not actually... In here, Georgia, in Georgia, it's in Tennessee, and then um, uh, guys, I'm, uh, I'm a bit too traumatized to continue. Someone else, yeah, no, take it refuses, over. She doesn't admit her mistake, and instead unleashes the cat that she snuck into the back, and the cat attacks. No, her. she freaks. She freaks out, and the cat gets loose. Yeah, she freaks out. The cat gets loose, and the cat then causes the driver to have an accident, and everybody <laughs> is on the road. You know, is on the road, a bit traumatized from the accident and bleeding and various cuts and bruises. The mm. kids are running amok. And the they manage to attract the attention of none other than the misfit, mm. which the grandmother recognizes. And he then proceed, and he, the misfit and his gang then proceed to shoot them all one by one. Things escalate quickly. Yes. Um, <laughs> one minute they're driving down the road, next minute dead. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so yeah, and um, there's but the, but the key thing is that there's a very interesting conversation between the grandmother and the misfit, and. That's where this story actually really gets kind of interesting and makes you want to go read it again to really understand what was famous and why it's such a famous and why it is such a famous short story. Mm. So 
we're going to get into that conversation a little bit more later, but ultimately, at the end, they all die. The misfit steals their car and off they go, and off they and ride they into the sunset, and then the story <clears throat> ends. Yeah. Yes. And then I proceeded to read the next short story in the book, not realizing that this was not a chapter book, but a collection of short stories, <laughs> and was very confused for the next few pages. I proceeded yeah. to stare at the ceiling in shock. <laughs> um. Yeah, I was. I was a bit like I was reading it on the train. <clears throat> going over the Harbour Bridge, and I'm just like, I've got to finish it before I get to my station in North Sydney, which is only two stations away. And yeah, yeah, yeah is the word. Yeah. Yeah. But no, actually, no is the word, no. (laughs) So much no. (laughs) So firstly, we'll just go on something completely different. How many people here read it in a southern accent? I did. Not the whole thing. When when the Misfits um, speaking, when the Misfits speaking because of the language like the way she spells things you have to read it in a southern accent like when you read Hagrid in Harry Potter but the rest I didn't which is why I, I was so confused when you put on the audio of um Flannery just before we started this yeah she's very southern I didn't realize I thought she was quite she was born in Georgia I, I didn't know this just <laughs> I know this now but like reading it like I couldn't just seriously I could not help I don't know if it was the words she used like there was nothing in there in her narration that was specifically southern like mm-hmm. only the dialogue was southern but I just couldn't help it's like the next morning the grandmother was the- <laughs> I'm sorry that's really terrible but like we'll probably play like right now a snippet of her accent the misfit kept scratching the ground with the butt of his gun as if he was thinking about yeah some somebody is always after you a few moments and you get a bit of an idea of what she sounds like there. So there's a lot to talk about here. There, I think there is a lot. It's very dense. Center on the on the conversation in the end between. Mm. Uh, I keep on going to call him Red John. I don't know why. <laughs> What's Red John? You, you've been watching the, the Mentalist there. a little bit too much. No, I know. You've been watching the Mentalist a little <laughs> bit too much, Luke. Now we all know what Luke's nighttime television is. Um, getting back to it, the Misfit. The Misfit. There's the no, Misfit Red and Red Sam. Red Sam. There's Red Sammy. Sam. There's Red Sammy, yes. Red Sammy, the um, rather large gentleman who runs the barbecue shop. Yeah. Who, yeah, is not Red John. No, um, he's Red Sammy. So, I mean, I think probably just looking at the whole thing and the conversation at the end and how it all ends. I mean, something that I've noticed with reading the other stories with Finery O'Connor is that they're all horrifying. Well, they're either, like, sort of non-events or they're horrifying and i think what's really fascinating about them is that once you actually look into it or you do what i did and you cheat a little bit and you read a commentary on it you realize that in these situations although it seems from our perspective um to be a horrible ending everyone dies this guy gets away the grandmother gets shot three times and like you know in her moment of attempting to outreach this bloke Now, from our view, it looks like a disaster, an absolute tragedy. But when you actually look at it and you look at the commentaries and you see the conversation, how it it pans out, uh, one of the consistent things that I saw in the commentaries was this idea of grace um, and this idea that it was at that moment that, at least for the first time in the story and perhaps for the first time in her life, she's actually reached out to someone else and been selfless. Now, one could argue that she was doing that because she wanted to save her life. But at the same time, she is actually going out of her way to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she's killed in that moment. Now, that might have been the best shot she had at heaven. 
in her entire life. If she'd gone away from that situation, lived a selfish life, she could have been on a road to hell. But in that moment, that might have been the moment where she had exercised virtue and exercised um, a Christian life that's pleasing to God. And it may have been in that moment that God allowed her to be killed in a pretty horrifying way. But in the grand scheme of things, it actually worked out for the best. Um, which I find really fascinating when I've actually looked at that again um, and looked at those commentaries. I think that's a really, really interesting, um, yeah, thought. Because, it, I mean, we all said that it kind of ends and you're a bit like, okay. I feel well, like I've was... just watched Wolf Creek. <laughs> yeah, that was terrifying. <laughs> what was the point of that? But embedded within it is this message of something really amazing and perhaps even profound that we live in a world of horror and tragedy, but we don't know what's going on, really. We don't know um, what the person's state of their soul is. We don't know what God's plan is for them. And perhaps God has allowed that horror to happen. I mean, after all, he allowed the fall to happen so that they might actually be paradoxically saved. The other thing, too, that's fascinating about that conversation is this movement from, um, because, I mean, like, she really, um, Finery grew up, you know, she's a Catholic, a very, very devout Catholic who grew up in the Deep South and was surrounded by Protestants most of her life. And so, and varying, varying kinds of Protestants and religious expression and the character of the Bible Belt in in the Deep South. And so... She very much captured in the grandmother this kind of shallow, polite talk about Jesus that she engages with this um, with this criminal to try and you know reason with him in a way or to try and you know she asks him, "Do you pray? You know, you should you know uh, Jesus would help you." This kind of thing, which in the south is normal, polite conversation. Apparently, um, would not happen in Australia at all. But um, in the context of the nineteen fifties in the Deep South and the Bible Belt. That was normal. and But then the grandmother is actually moved to a genuine place of deep faith, moves from the shallow into the deep when suddenly she has this epiphany, when she sees a moment of weakness and vulnerability in this criminal. Um, she sees an opportunity to reach out in love and she says, you are one of my, ba- you know, you're just one of my babies. You know, you know, she realizes that she's no better than he is. And, you know, she is just as weak and as sinful as he is. And sees a moment, you know, an opportunity to try and love this person. And you really do think, oh, my gosh, this could turn things around. This could be a happy ending. And then no. And then no. Which in many ways is just, I think, just a reflection of the tragedy, a real accurate reflection of the tragedy that is the story of humanity in a way. And she just creates that beautifully. Mm. Um, I mean... And the other thing, too, is, um, you know, when you were talking about how shocking her style is and how depressing it often is, actually that was the character of the Southern literature re- renaissance yeah, at the time. Afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so what was going oh, really? on? So yeah, most, most stories ended like this? It's or? Southern Gothic, it's I called, believe. Yeah, That's it's called, so cool. It's called Southern Gothic, and it came in the post-World War, uh, post-World War One. There's this kind of revival of Southern literature in this very Gothic vein, which in many ways, you know, what was going on in the South at the time was there was rapid industrialization going on. The Civil War is finished and they lost really badly. So they kind of slunk off back to the South and tried to do their own thing without drawing too much attention. 
World War I changed all that. The country became quite united against a common enemy in Europe and the South rapidly started industrializing. Um, it was changing very, very quickly. And so you get this real nostalgia for the old ways of the old South, you know, yeah. where everyone well, was that, respectful that... and all that sort of stuff. And um, children weren't brats and whatnot. Um, so they've got... So you ha- and and the gothic the southern gothic was a product of that time. Now, Flannery O'Connor is not the typical um it's not a atypical example of that genre, but she was part of that revival and movement. And um if you want a more classic example of southern gothic, you got to go to someone like Andrew Tate, I think it is, who was a contemporary of Flannery O'Connor and they wrote really brutal gothy kind of stories like it's kind of metal what happened to that (laughs) to that poor grandmother (laughs) metal yeah (laughs) sorry maybe we should cut that out that's funny it's it's a Um, good expression okay well Kiara you touched on something actually I want to talk about you guys are there with your deep thought about grace and that sort of stuff and that washed over my head But um, something that didn't wash over my head was just this, um, as you said, this appeal to the um, the olden days, this era that was apparently better, people were nicer and stuff like that. And I'm not going to uh, disagree, like, I, you know, I fall into that all the time. I think, gosh, you know, in the, you know, in the 30s, 20s and stuff, you know, w- women courted, people had manners, this and that, people wore appropriate dress, those sort of things. But... I think something Flannery O'Connor is talking about is the fact that um, there's this ah, this thing that humans always do. It doesn't matter what era they live in, and it's called Golden Age Syndrome. Have you guys heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. Basically taught, like, always thinking that the era before you or some era that happened before you was the best. And there's nothing really wrong with that, I suppose, in terms of nostalgia or perhaps thinking it more preferable. But in the end, once you start saying like vehemently saying yes that is that was the best era i think it's almost in denial of um the fall and original sin to say that there was a like paradise sort of era because really every era was bad for some reason or another mm. like it, it's just it's just not reality exactly every, i mean was, there were good things about the old south and there were also really bad things about the good oh, old yeah. south like you know there was just as it, just as in every era of human history there have been great wonderful things and also exactly i mean like even stuff. even going back to like the 20s and 30s like you know racism was well in was life endemic. <laughs> it was it was pretty big and even now when um our grand- grandparents are saying that our you know a decade our generation is um Lazy. Satan incarnate, um, or lazy. Or lazy. <laughs> or lazy. That's a nice <laughs> um, you know, lazy I... entitled slobs well, who don't I... know a day's hard work in their life. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that I. Well, you know, I can see myself telling my grandchildren, "Look, there was a time when we didn't have, you know, computer chips with everything in our head. Like we had to read off the internet. We had to Google things." <laughs> oh, it was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's always going to be something better. There's always going to be something worse. But back in my day, we had Siri, not <laughs> <thought> recognition. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm saying me. anymore. But yeah, basically, I think we should acknowledge uh, human nature as it is. There are we we will always be, uh, we will always have faults. We will always sin, and in the end, we do need um, redemption. That is obviously through Christ. But I think that's where I'm going to end this little. 
for yeah, surprising little things. Yeah, I mean, but see, this thing. is the thing too that I love what Flannery does with, um, what she does with that old nostalgia is well, that she satirizes it. Suppose, yeah, she yeah. essentially she does. She really, really satirizes it because the de- you know, like uh, you know, even in its glory days, the old South was this, you know, had many flaws. You know, racism was endemic. Slavery, you know, the whole society was built on slave labor Mm. you know and not just slave labor but this very very right you know racist um attitude towards slavery like at least the you know and they very much modeled themselves off a new rome Mm. in many ways so if you look at the old architecture of the deep south it's very very you know lots of columns lots of grand buildings lots of white marble and um unfortunately the difference between the roman empire and the uh, the old south was that the roman empire didn't care what colour the slaves were as long as they were in collars, whereas, you know, the old South, you had to be black to be a slave. You know, that's kind of... Was that with the whole thing that someone put forth this document that um, an African-American person was worth, like, three quarters that of a white person? That was a judicial decision. That is so... Oh. Well, well, up until very rec- well, up until recently, and even in some countries to this day, a woman's testimony is only worth half of what a man's testimony is worth. In judicial courts, not here. Not okay. here. Not <laughs> here. Not here. here but it used to be once upon a time. Well, that even in even in Australia, a woman's testimony was not taken as seriously well, legally as a man's. Well, testimony. that's certainly Citation the case in there, Citation yeah. needed there. Citation, Citation needed, needed there. But that's certainly the case, I suppose, in the Bible, especially when you know Mary Magdalene sees the risen Christ, and you know no one believes her. No one believes her. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. We've just, we've just been past Easter here. So yeah, this is so all very fresh in our It's all very fresh because yeah, we've like, heard it about four times in I mean, mass. I mean, as we know, you know, Mary uh, Mary Magdalene and the women of Jerusalem, et cetera, et cetera, were the first people to see the risen Christ. Uh, Peter and John did not see her, uh, see him rather, until later on. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting, I think, bringing out uh, these notions of... Um, of the good old days and why they're not really that fantastic. Um, I just wanted to have a look at sort of on the final page, there's a really interesting line, like the final lines of the, of the story. Um, and Bobby Lee, one of the, one of the offsiders of the misfits says after they've killed her, she was a real talker, wasn't she? Uh, Bobby Lee said, sliding down the ditch with a yodel. She would have been a good woman. The misfit said, if it had been someone there to shoot her every minute of her life, which is terrifying. <laughs> well, but it kind of makes sense in light of that because it was only when she was on the ver, you know, only exactly. when she was faced with her imminent death that she was able to be loving to Precisely. her son. Yeah. You know, and her final goodbye was very well, tender. She called him Bailey boy, you know, which is something obviously she hadn't called him since he was a child. And the same and with Bailey, he calls him calls her calls mama. Her mama. And, um, you know, so it's not until she was actually faced with death that she realised, you know, that she's able to step outside herself and mm, be, mm, you know, mm. be, lo- you know, be a loving example and to be self you know, to be self-sacrificing. Well, people and- say you're the most wise on your deathbed. I mean... Um- you got nothing left to lose. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. But you become, like, super wise. I think you realise, you know, this life either means something or it doesn't. And I'm definitely going to bet on the fact that it does. Um, you know, people say that Oscar Wilde converted on his deathbed, which is not quite. Not he, was, quite. he was baptised. Well, yeah, I mean, not quite on his deathbed. He definitely converted before yeah. he died. Um, he converted to Catholicism before his death. Um, he was an Anglican, uh, not a very good one at that. 
But yeah, it's Oscar Wilde. Yeah, yeah. No, but he did. He did have a conversion before he died. I'm well, that's just one example. Sure I know that lots deathbed, of people, though. yeah, convert on their on their deathbed. Yeah, um, which is or or have a reversion. Definitely would have a yeah. reversion. But yeah, I think it's just really fascinating this thing in light of um, this notion of grace and grace working with. What you got? <laughs> yeah, I mean, not working with evil in the sense of using evil, but rather allowing evil to happen to come to the good cause. I mean, St. John Vianney says that the devil's, I'm going to make it a bit more polite, an idiot. Um, <laughs> he, he uses a word that's not impolite, but it's just a bit vulgar. Um, and, I, I kind of want to know what it is, Luke. Oh, it's just ass. But- <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> It's like, he the means like as in a donkey. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. all he means. The but I mean, in, in our contemporary <laughs> co- uh, colloquialisms, <laughs> it sounds a bit worse. And I think this kind of shows shows the truth in it and brings out the truth in that, that God will work with the devil's attempts at short-term gain, that is, murder through the misfit, in order to pretty much save uh, the grandmother, but who, also I'm sure has a name. It's just well, no, this name? is the thing. Yeah. Lots of people named. go by okay. like all basically the all the the wives go by the wife of blah blah or okay. the woman, and only a few people have names. But back to what you were saying, not only is the grandma saved. Um, we were doing a bit of academic reading before this, and there's um an academic that basically says that the misfit in the end will be saved as well because this instance in his life will just hammer away in his head. Mm. Until, hopefully, very, very slow salvation comes. You know, because he says at the end, you know, because, you know, Bobby Lee says, wasn't that, f-, you know, says something to kin of, you know, wasn't that fun? And, you know, the misfit says, shut up, but you know, shut up, Bobby Lee. There's no pleasure anymore. Yeah. It's no kind real of in- pleasure in life. Yeah, there's yeah. no real which pleasure in life. Which directly contradicts what he'd said prior to that, which was the only pleasure in life that he could get was from killing people. Mm. That was what he said, that that's the only pleasure in life is causing harm. And after this moment... There is no pleasure for him, uh, which is interesting. But it's also kind of, you know, the, it's also kind of highlighting to this nihilistic place that you get to when you actively reject God. Like, this man's not an atheist necessarily, he believes God exists, he just doesn't like him. Um, and, you know, doesn't want to have anything he to do with it. He thinks everything's messed up because of it. Yeah, and, and you know, that's not really technically, a, you know, atheism in the strictest sense, but it is often what, but it is often this kind, I would say it is a foreshadowing of, you know, the new atheism that mm. we see now, which people who don't necessarily know, you know, people who don't necessarily believe God doesn't exist, but they think he's really a bad idea anyway, even if he does happen to exist, because he just messes everything up. And... Well, he, well, here's the quote. I, I reckon this will like sum it up pretty yeah. well. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. The misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He's shown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do, but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do, but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure, but meanness. Mm. And um, I think that really kind of is a really good example of sort of what C.S. Lewis said to kind of harken back to something we've done before in terms of kind of either with Christ or you're not. He was either God or he was not a lunatic. Yeah. And, it's and like even the misfit gets this. About basically. what Nietzsche says about the English um, with 
that they were, you know, atheists, but they all had these high ideals and and this kind of moralism. And he basically calls them a bunch of flatheads. Um, <laughs> probably I'll sounds a lot better in the German. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because he's like, well, you know, if we're going to be atheists, well, you got to chuck everything else out as well. Start again. I mean, I... I'm not 100% sure about that, but that was Nietzsche's position. And I think that it's the it's the horrifying end of the logic that we can find in a lot of these things. I mean, I see on Facebook, you know, <laughs> people on Facebook that I know. Luke's that are, face that are palming right now. Yeah. You can't on, see him. <laughs> that was my face palm sound. <laughs> that, I just made. that will one minute say that... You know, the church is horrible or religion is horrible because it's committed all these sins. And then in the next breath, in the next day or so, they'll post a thing about how, oh, sin doesn't really exist. Um, it's just something made up by the church or by religion to control people. Well, I mean, you can't have it both ways. You know, either the church is right and sin exists. Even and we commit, and even and as a church, sin. we commit sins, mm-hmm. and we will repent and try and do, yeah, you, you know, and we will continue to commit. sins. You can't sins. have it both ways, and I think a lot of the time, the new atheists, particularly kind of combox new atheists, don't follow their logic through. What they really mean is, you know, anything that I do uh, that the church condemns isn't really a sin. You know, like it might be. A sexual sin or something that's like that. And oh, it's the church and religion trying to keep me down. But if religion does something bad, oh, well, then that's bad. You know, it's a real uh, problem in logic there and a, and a lack of following through. But the misfit, his philosophy represents a kind of taking to the end of this logic of, well, you know, if all I've got is a meat sack and that's me and that's it, who says I can't go and... And just kill people and burn their houses down. Now, that's not necessarily the only philosophical position you can take on morality with atheism. But for a lot of new atheists, the line that they take with regards to sin, a bit of a pick and choose cafeteria kind of morality, you can't have that. It's either one or the other. You can't justify it either. Like, it, it just all crumbles to the ground. And that's why I've got... I actually have a lot of respect for atheists like Sartre and Camus and some of the nihilists because they actually took their logic to the to its horrifying end. Yeah, you know, to its not really all that pleasant end. And said, "Oh well, this is the grave we dug. We're not going to lie in it. Thank you very much, and we're going to have a good time getting there." And I'm like, "All right, you know, I can't argue. You know, at least you you know you understand where you're going, and that's your free choice to do so. I'm mm. still going to pray for you." But, you know, and the misfit, you know, in some ways I do have a little bit of like the misfit sparked that little bit of respect in me because at least he's willing to, you know, take seriously what he believes, you know, and whether, you know, and it's just a shame he's not a Christian because he would take that really, really seriously Mm. and could have been and could have been a great man. And but you still I like see- how we're lamenting over a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> but that- I mean, there are people in the world like this. Yes, yeah. and that's the yeah. point. That's the yeah. point of literature is to take you to another world to show you what your world looks like. Mm. Yeah, I have nothing to say. Oh, you have nothing <laughs> to say. Okay. See, I think what's really interesting about about this book is that I think it would be kind of recommended reading almost for. Um, for nihilistic teenagers, because I think they'd really be able to get into this. I mean, you kind of rebellious teenager, because if you're able to guide someone through it, let them read it, and I'm sure, you know, a rebellious 
teenager, like, I wasn't really like that as a teenager, but, you know, there are plenty of people who were. I was. <laughs> yeah, would probably find this to be an amazing story. But then you can go, bang, you know, and show them the undercurrents within this and show them essentially that, yes, the world is a horrifying place because of sin, but God works with that. I can't say, well, you know, look at, say, for example, the the Malaysia air disaster. I can't look at that and say, you know what? All it is is a horror. All it is is a tragedy. And in fact, this reminds me of the scripture from the Book of Wisdom, uh, which says, but the souls of the upright are in the hands of God and no torment can touch them. To the unenlightened, they appeared to die. Their departure was regarded as a disaster. They're leaving us in annihilation, but they are at peace. And I think, although that doesn't quite touch on it in the same way as I'm looking at it, you know, it can seem like through our human eyes that something is just a disaster and that there's no reason for it and it's just really horrible. But if you look deeper, if you look through the eyes of God, we don't know what he's doing with this situation. We don't know the intricate... Um, meaning of each of these actions that God allows to happen. I mean, he doesn't will for people to go through horror, um, but he can allow that to happen so that they can be with him. And I think that's a really interesting thing that in today's world, we might be able to gain from something like Flannery O'Connor, which on the surface seems horrifying, but when you dig deeper, it's beautiful. That's a mark of true, like, truly good literature. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so, that wraps up our time for tonight. Uh, I'm quite amazed that we were able to get half an hour out of this tiny little book. Um, But, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks. We'll be back with the next episode. And, I don't know, what do you reckon we'll be reading? (laughs) Let's just read The Crucible. Let's just do it. I've been pushing for this for ages. All right, all right, we'll read The Crucible. All right, it's going to happen. We'll read The Crucible. Yes. All right, we're reading The Crucible in two weeks. Here on Cradio, same bat time, same bat channel. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm a little bit delusional at the moment. I'm so tired. <laughs> Luke's running on thank like you half an hour of sleep. <laughs> okay. So thank you for listening to us and we'll talk to you. See you something next time. God bless. Goodbye. Bye. Take care. That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au. 